Open your cerebral cortex and shift your lobes into upper beta phase because you are going to have Bitcoin knowledge transmitted directly into your vestibulocochlear. Your host of Bitcoin Knowledge is Trace Mayer, an early Bitcoin advocate since it cost a quarter, but this is not intended to be investment advice. A doctor of jurisprudence, but this is definitely not legal advice. And an investor in core cryptocurrency infrastructure, including Armory, BitPay, Kraken, and Mitagio, but this is not a recommendation of those services. Here, you get fed via direct mind download with pure and free Bitcoin knowledge. Welcome back to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast. We have with us Kevin Zhao, the former chief economist at Buttercoin, and we're here to give you the week of August 30th to September 5th update. So, Kevin, what's been happening in the Bitcoin markets and uh, news-wise this week? Uh, you know, it's been a pretty slow week in the markets. Um, you know, for the most part, the price has moved sideways. Um, in terms of actual news, um, I did hear something about Barclays uh, seriously looking into um, using the blockchain uh, for something or other. I don't think they're too interested in Bitcoin, but they like the technology, you know, quote unquote, back in Bitcoin, the blockchain stuff. So, um, so that's been happening. And I just read something recently that UBS is also, um, you know, uh, internally building out, you know, some type of blockchain applications. So it does seem like a lot of banks are uh, interested in it. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it'll be interesting to see what sort of things they come out with. Uh, likely going to be, you know, permission ledger type stuff, um, you know, for, you know, keeping track of like uh, all different sorts of assets, um, you know, on the blockchain uh, digital rights, maybe something like that, custodianship through the blockchain, stuff like that. So yeah. uh, it'd be interesting to see what comes out of that. Yeah, it makes it, it's very kind of it's interesting because a few weeks ago, I went to a the Barclays opened a fintech innovation center in New York City, and they flew in people from all over the world. There were probably at least a hundred or two hundred Barclays employees at at this meeting, and the chairman of the board he said. You know, I want everybody to see what we're doing here. I want you to see the innovation that we're focused on and because we need to innovate as a bank. And it's funny because, <laughs> and it's funny because the CEO, Anthony Jenkins, was supposed to be the one kicking off this event, but he got fired a week before by that chairman for not innovating fast enough at Barclays. Ah, uh, well, there you go, right? <laughs> and so, uh, the chief technology officer and the chief operating officer, uh, he, he, fills both roles, he said, you know, I get asked, what's the ROI on this? And he's like, I don't know. And <laughs> which I thought yeah. you could hear nervous laughters in the audience. And yeah. then he put up a slide and the slide had, uh, it had Apple Pay and Google Wallet down in the bottom. He's like, you know, these guys are getting into the fintech space. It had in the upper left, it had 13,000 fintech startups. And he's like, you know, out of in the last four years, we've had 34 fintech startups that have reached a billion dollar plus valuation, which is greater than the $30 billion market cap of the 325 year old Barclays. And then he put up Alibaba and Alipay and Tencent. And he said, and then we have the Chinese and they're getting into fintech and we have absolutely no idea what they're doing. And so I thought it was very interesting that you're getting leadership from the very top of the bank, from the chairman of the board of Barclays, firing the CEO for not innovating fast enough. 
mm-hmm. getting into this brand new technology, but having no idea what they're doing or what the ROI is going to be. <laughs> so, yeah, and, and, and even worse, now they're playing follow the leader. We've got Barclays, we've got UBS, <laughs> uh, we've got all of them deciding to play follow the leader and do something blockchain related. Uh, do you, do you yeah, see that as you a, know, nobody wants to, nobody wants to get left behind, right? It's sort of like they, everybody's like hurting together. Everybody's uh, bandwagoning together. And, you know, Apple and Google, I mean, they probably know what they're doing. You know, they're pretty innovative compared to us as a bank. So why don't we just do what they do? You know, it's, it's maybe a little bit like that. You well, know? Do you think they're going to be able to do that? I mean, like, let's, let's just step back a little bit. And, you know, we look at Deutsche Bank, $40 billion market cap. Barclays is $30 billion market cap. Goldman Sachs is maybe $80, $90 billion. Same with Morgan Stanley. We got JP Morgan Chase, a couple hundred billion market cap. You take the sum of all the big banks together, and their market cap is about equal to Google's market cap. Yeah, and Google yeah. is only two-thirds the market cap of Apple. And so when you've uh-huh. got Apple and Google, tech giants that absolutely dwarf these little but quote-unquote big banks – uh, have the tech companies really just turned the howitzers on on these uh, these banks and decided, you know what, we're just going to obliterate them and we're going to innovate, and and so the the banks are just left like, oh, what do we do? I don't know. Well, don't start that again. <laughs> <laughs> we should innovate like they innovate. You know, let's just do exactly what they do. You know, that's that's the thought of what innovation means. Um, you know, in a very large legacy institution. And, you know, honestly, I mean, with the bankers, you can't really blame them either because, you know, throughout the history of, of banking, I mean, they've only made more money centralizing things and becoming uh, bigger and bigger conglomerates, uh, more and more uh, bureaucratic. So uh, for the most part, you know, what they think of innovation, what, uh, you know, most people think of innovation is a little bit different. Um, you know, they, they are taking, they are making some strides. They have these innovation labs where they pretty much try to run them uh, like a startup, they give them tons of money and as little oversight as they possibly can. Um, but, you know, it's still, you know, proving challenging for them. So whether or not they can actually build out this stuff, I mean, I don't think it's for a lack of talent that uh, they're not going to be able to. Um, for what, what I see, it's more of like a systemic issue with how uh, large companies are run. I mean, it's just like, it's just very hard to have this kind of very new technology that's extremely hard for them to understand and then, you know, get it to work and then sell it to customers. Yeah, they, they, so, got, they got too much inertia. So, I mean, what, what are we seeing in uh, not just the Bitcoin markets, but just like all these cryptocurrency markets together? Because if we're going to talk about innovation, we're, we kind of have to talk about everything that's going on. So, you know, Bitcoin was kind of slow, not a lot of volume there. But I guess you'd put in your notes that like the Bitfinex BTC swaps were trading at a premium. Like what's the deal going on over there? Yeah, you know, and that's actually a very rare occurrence. Um, what that's saying is that People are taking out more loans uh, on the swap book to go uh, leverage short on Bitcoin uh, than they are uh, going long. So, um, well, at least, this, you know, the demand is pointing in that direction. So, um, you know, it's, it's kind of strange. You know, this sort of thing happens every once in a while where the BTC swaps are trading at a premium. Um, but, uh, you know, for the most part, it's, um, it's the other way around. So, you know, maybe it's, you know, actually, Actually, that uh, there's a lot of people taking out shorts on Bitcoin right now. Um, so then, you know, if the price actually did move against them, you know, up to a certain amount, uh, we can expect some some margin calls uh, and some type of cascade upward. Um, but you know, I mean, it really is hard to say. You know, maybe it's possible that uh, deposits 
uh, for USD are all of a sudden a lot easier, and there's just a lot more um, dollars flowing into Bitfinex because they're you know they've proven themselves out to be fairly secure uh, on the dollars front at least. So then you know you know they can uh, it, it's pretty much like you know free interest, right? I mean, you can if you get like twenty percent on your cash uh, per year. I mean, their counterparty risk can't be more than 10%, right, per year. So <laughs> we'll see. You're, you're, getting, we'll see. <laughs> you're getting a good 10% on that. That's not so bad, you know. It's not so bad. Yeah, so. Ne- never a free lunch. Uh, what, yeah. what, are, what are some of these other signals that we're seeing from the altcoin markets? Yeah, you know, it, it, so I was thinking about, you know, as a postmortem looking at, uh, you know, that spam attack on Bitcoin in uh, July. So um, as I remember, it was like July 6th. Uh, through July uh, 10th, and uh, there's this huge spam attack. It, it has to do with, um, you know, having a lot of uh, UTXO, um, you know, transactions. So, so there's a lot of outputs and all these, like, dust outputs in these transactions, building out the mem- mempool and slowing down sort of, like, how quickly the average uh, transaction gets confirmed. Well, at least those ones, right? So, um, you know, th- there's a qualitative difference between Litecoin and Bitcoin in that, you know, according to a post made by Charlie, uh, Charlie Lee, the founder of Litecoin, uh, Litecoin is actually immune to that sort of spam attack. And he actually had a pull request on Bitcoin uh, to fix this type of spam issue uh, three years ago. So, you know, what I'm getting at is that uh, during this time, Time it was also confounded with you know the whole Greek crisis and the Chinese market uh, crashing. So you know Bitcoin and Litecoin were going up, but they went up very different amounts. So between uh, the sixth and the tenth of July, we saw Bitcoin rise. You know from like about two seventy to two ninety, so about like seven and a half percent. While Litecoin rose about you know from five forty to about like six ninety, about like a twenty eight percent move. Wow. So maybe you know. You know, and this is also confounded with, you know, when the spam attack was happening. So it's sort of like all these different, like, positive, you know, pieces of, of, of you know, upward pressure against, like, the spam attack being negative. It's sort of like, you know, Bitcoin moved 7.5%, Litecoin moved 28%. And then there's some, like, leverage ratio between Bitcoin and Litecoin. And it's like 1 to 3 or something like that. Or, or I, I don't, you know however it normally is. But if we take all of that information together, we kind of get a sense of how Bitcoin would have moved had there not been a spam attack and just riding on the Greek and the Chinese news. Oh, so, so you're, you're uh, trying to figure out what, like, what the normal R-squared correlation coefficient would be and then take the delta uh, between that and then attribute that to uh, being the difference between the, the spam attack? Right, exactly. So like, you know, Litecoin and Bitcoin they usually move in tandem and Litecoin is sort of like a leveraged Bitcoin. Like when Bitcoin goes up, Litecoin goes up more. When Bitcoin goes down, Litecoin goes down more on average. Right. But usually it's not to the, you know, to the order of like uh, four times. Right. So um, some of the suppression of the Bitcoin price moving up was that spam attack. So I want to try and quantify uh, what that is so that, you know, in some sense later on, if there is actually this fix in Bitcoin, like there's some, there's some, you know, pull request that's accepted, then we know, uh, what that pull request is kind of worth all else, you know, held equal. Now, obviously things aren't actually held equal, but you know, you know, at least maybe, you know, you're more right than you're wrong there, right? Like you have some sense of how to trade on that, on that piece of news, uh, just looking at like the issues on, on Git. Yeah, very interesting. What about some of the other altcoins? I mean, are they just doomed? Uh, like, what's what's happening? What's happening there? I mean, what do you think of those? 
Because, I mean, we've seen some innovation in some of these, you know, whether it's the CryptoNote protocol or Monero or, uh, mm-hmm. you know, different hashing algorithms, Quark. Like, I mean, what do you think of these things? You know, I actually like CryptoNote. I think it's pretty novel to have, like, ring signatures in uh, the protocol itself, providing some some better level of pseudo-anonymity uh, than Bitcoin. Uh, so, you know, I think maybe that'll survive. It's at least innovative and unique enough that it's different you know, from Bitcoin. Uh, but, you know, there are some others where, I mean, there's just there's no way that they're going to make it, in my opinion. Like, if you look at Megacoin, for example, you know, when it first came out, they had a great innovation, which was their difficulty adjustment algorithm. They called it uh, the Komodo Gravity Well. And uh, what that does is it helps difficulty adjust more rapidly uh, than Bitcoin standard algorithm. And that was really important for the time because uh, there was a lot of merge mining happening on, happening on the altcoins, on all the different altcoins. And then a lot of hashing power would move between different altcoins very rapidly so sometimes like this current fashionable coin you know all of a sudden is you know not as valuable or less fashionable everybody moves to a different coin and leaving the original coin with a very high difficulty and a very low hash rate so that you know blocks are found really slowly so they needed a, a, an algorithm to make difficulty adjustment uh, a lot quicker and uh, you know they came up with the Komodo gravity well but you know since then uh, you know megacoin hasn't gotten you know, enough traction to sort of protect itself as the incumbent. Well, at the same time, every altcoin that came out after it used some version of the Komodo Gravity Well. Like Darkcoin and Dash use the Dark Gravity Wave, but, you know, also has other innovations built on top of it. So if Megacoin's only real innovation was the Komodo Gravity Well, and it hasn't gotten to a size where it can just, like, sustain itself from its network effects, then ultimately I see it as being doomed because it's, it's one innovation is no longer unique. Um, and I, I would say the same thing for Quark too. I mean, if you look at Quark, they had uh, six different hashing algorithms all chained together. But you know, now this is sort of being very commonplace. You have things like X11, X you know 13, uh, where it's like 11 or 13 different hashing algorithms, along with other innovative features. Like I think Darkcoin has uh, 11 different hashing features, uh, hashing functions. So it's like what made Quark um, unique back then. Uh, is, you know, is no longer unique. So why, why would that matter, though? Like, I mean, is it just kind of well, if one's good, two's better type of thinking, or is there actually like some type of security advantage to having multiple different uh, hashing algorithms? Uh, it was for two different fronts. So on one hand, it makes it more ASIC resistant. Um, ultimately, it's not actually ASIC resistant, but it makes it more ASIC resistant to have these. Uh, you know, different hashing algorithms. And the other thing is that there is some slight added security in that if any one gets compromised, um, you know, you're still okay, right? Like if SHA2 gets compromised, uh, Bitcoin's uh, not doing so hot. But, you know, if, if it was also, you know, had a couple other ones too, um, then you'd have to kind of compromise all of them. Or so, at least compromise the last one. I think that's how it worked. I think you got to compromise the last one on the chain, uh, in that chain of hashing. Um, I'm not exactly clear. It's been a while on that. Right. So, you know, getting to the meat, like where the traders can uh, really have a lot of fun, uh, Ethereum, you know, it looks like the vaporware actually got shipped. <laughs> and, yeah. and like, has that just been a trader's paradise? And where could, I, where, where could people actually trade it? Uh, I think, I think Kraken was the first exchange to list Ethereum and then also Poloniex, right? That's right. So I think right now the, the biggest markets are, Poloniex and Kraken. And uh, yeah, I mean, volumes have been pretty good for Ethereum. I mean, right now, the only four, I guess, coins that have any volume, you know, this week's been pretty slow is like, you know, Bitcoin, uh, Ripple, Ethereum, and 
uh, Litecoin. I mean, every, everything else is pretty slow. But yeah, I mean, Ethereum's um, actually gone up maybe about 10% uh, since last week. So, yeah, but, but it's really the volatility that's been a lot of fun with Ethereum, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's sort of like living in the Bitcoin early days where, you know, the swings can just be absolutely massive. And when Ethereum first came out, you, I mean, you would see drops of like uh, like 70% in the span of like a few minutes or hours. I mean, it's it's sort of the Wild West again. So, uh, which also brings the question of like, you know, how, how do you actually do margin trading on it? You know, on, with, on Kraken over here, uh, we, we allow two and a half um, X leverage on Ethereum trading. Uh, but, you know, obviously we have to put in a lot of risk controls uh, to make sure that, you know, account balances don't go negative, not too many, you know, margin calls, you know, that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, it, it's really something to manage when the volatility is that great. But yes, volatility, you know, traders paradise, there's a lot, uh, there's a lot to do there. Um, and uh, it's a fun market. That market is definitely moving. Yeah. Anything fundamental happening at Ethereum? Have, have they managed to keep their blockchain secure and not not get attacked? Or uh, is consensus working fine? Like what's going on? Yeah, I think they might have run into uh, some technical issues. Maybe like there was like two of them since they launched. But for the most part, I think everything's fixed now. I haven't been following it too well. But, uh, you know, I got to say they shipped the product. And in the, in the original yeah, you know, time, terms of agreement, right? <laughs> yeah, it is, it is about time. But, in, you know, in the original terms of agreement during the pre-sale, I mean, there were clauses in there that said, you know, there's no guarantee that our product will ever, uh, you know, come out as we've, you know, specified it or even come out at all, right? I mean, there's like tons of dis- disclaimers like yeah, that. So we'll I'm just, just take, happy. We'll just take your money and run. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm actually really happy that they really shipped the product. And it is looking pretty good. You know, it's, it's, it's looking pretty nice. So, um, you know, I'm looking forward to, you know, seeing how Augur does uh, with its pre-sale. Uh, they're probably going to be one of the bigger apps on Ethereum, at least one of the earlier ones. And uh, maybe it would be a great use case for and Ethereum. What, and what's Augur do? Yeah, Augur is building out a decentralized uh, prediction market. And, oh, uh, won't that be fun? <laughs> yeah, it, w- it would be. I think it'll be a lot of fun. I mean, you can, I mean, like in some ways, prediction markets are really strong, right? In that if, if the market is vibrant and liquid enough, it can actually change the future, right? It can actually affect the future and outcome. Yeah, because, instead it, of just because, it, because it pulls knowledge in from uh, everybody, you know, and, mm-hmm. and if somebody in the world has superior knowledge about something compared to everybody else in the world, whether it's the way they feel themselves or like whatever it is. And so the prediction markets are a great way to pull that knowledge out uh, mm-hmm. of everybody. Uh, I think Intrade, which actually got shut down by the U.S. regulatory authorities, it had been correct in predicting every major U.S. presidential candidate that got elected into office, and also the last time it, it ran with the uh, the Senate races, it, it correctly predicted 33 out of 34 Senate races. Uh, why? Oh, I mean, oh. why do you think that is? You know, I think it's probably you're pooling the wisdom of the crowds, right? It's like you know uh, there are these uh, experiments where they do you know you guess the number of marbles in a large jar, right? And you have like a whole uh, auditorium of you know college students guess, right? And you take the average, and it's usually within one or two marbles, uh, if not exactly on the on the dot. So you're really you're really getting something from this sort of like independent sort of like crowdsourced informational like information gathering. Uh, but yeah, I think even beyond that, I mean, you could make some really weird markets, right? You could say that, hey, I'm going to make a market for it snowing in a prediction market of what date it's going to snow in the Sahara. Right, which is like virtually impossible, and you can have a lot of people just bet tons of money on what day they think that's going to happen. Right, and what that is really doing is it's crowdsourcing 
weather control, right? The invention of weather control. It's like people are saying, I know I'm losing my bet. I'm, I'm just throwing money into this, this betting pool. And then it's sort of like a prize for whoever can actually invent some device that causes it to snow uh, in the Sahara. And that guy can, you know, make the bet on a day that nobody else has bet on and then just collect everybody else's money. Right. Um, but, you know, ultimately everybody benefits, right? Because all of a sudden now we have weather control and we can create snow in the Sahara and maybe it was totally worth it. So, you, you know, you sort of crowdfund things through like a prediction market. I mean, I think that's, that, I mean, it's a bit far off, but and, I think and, there is. And, and therefore the auger tokens go up in value and therefore you should buy some of them today because the discounted future value of those potential auger tokens are going to be greater in the future than what their value today. <laughs> what a- Possibly, you know, I haven't bought auger yet, but I, but I might, you know, Assu- I mean, assuming it's not going to be complete vaporware like Ethereum right. or MaveSafe or some of these other ones, right? <laughs> right. Assuming that, I mean, it's all a gamble really. I mean, this is like, this is like seed investing, right? Or most of it is going to fail. And then maybe you'll hit something well, that is I- great. Yeah. I, personally, I haven't bought any auger. I keep giving uh, Jeremy Gardner a bunch of crap about it, but <laughs> it, it might be fun. Maybe I should uh, interview him for the podcast. Anyways, yeah. uh, we've had a great uh, wrap-up for the week. I know it's been kind of slow, but maybe we found some stuff to introduce a little bit of fun and volatility uh, for the listeners. Anyways, thanks for uh, thanks for the time, and uh, look forward to the next one. Yeah, thanks for having me, Trace, and uh, anytime. Be sure to get a copy of the free Bitcoin guide at freebitcoinguide.com. Got a question or suggestion? Record your voice at bitcoin.kn. Don't be shy. To help the show, share bitcoin.kn with friends, post about it on Reddit, and otherwise spam the interwebs. Your iTunes comments and five-star reviews are very important to us. Please continue tuning in to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast, where we release interviews with the top people in the Bitcoin world. Now take some choline and let that Bitcoin knowledge consolidate.